Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. New Year's Day, 1929. University of California at Berkeley was playing Georgia Tech in the Rose Bowl. There was a defensive uh, tackle by the name of Roy Regals who picked up a fumble, ran laterally across the field, and then 65 yards in the wrong direction. He would have scored a safety for Georgia Tech had he not been tackled by one of his own players. But now what do you do? First to 10 on the one foot line. The coach for Cal decided that, well, we got to do the safe thing. Let's punt the ball out of here. And so that's what they attempted to do. But Georgia Tech blocked the punt, jumped on the ball for a touchdown. From that day on, Regals was saddled with the infamous name, you've probably heard of him, Wrong Way Regals. That for years, whenever anybody introduced the guy, yeah, I know who you are. You're the guy that ran the wrong way in the Rose Bowl. Now, the truth is that we all have our share of failure. Maybe you have not run, uh, run the wrong way in front of a national audience in the Rose Bowl, but the truth is that every one of us in this auditorium have skeletons in our closet that are rattling their bones that we sure hope nobody ever hears about. None of us have arrived yet. And I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a spiritual war raging all around us that there is nothing that Satan loves better than to throw that failure up in your face. How does God want us to handle failure? Can I just say again that there is a war going on that Satan enjoys reminding you about every one of your failures. He loves to make you feel guilty. He loves to have you live under the pile of shame and guilt that he takes great pleasure in telling you and I that we're a failure and that God would never use a loser like you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I often say that failure doesn't have to be terminal. In fact, I believe God wants to use failure in your life and mine, even sinful failure, to teach us some really important lessons. Well, wait a minute, what lessons? What can we learn from failure? Well, one thing is, that maybe I need a little help to live the Christian life. That I can't do this on my own. I need to take up God's resources every day. God wants to use failure in your life and mine to teach us some very valuable lessons. Like what? That I need to rely on God's resources. Lessons like I need to desperately understand that God's forgiveness is absolute. That when we confess that sin, when we repent from it, God is not going to bring that up again. A moment ago, we read from Psalm 103. Can I just read it again quickly? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not only strive with us, he, uh, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is that? So great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He knows our frame. He's mindful that we're but dust. This morning I want to talk about overcoming failure. And to do that, I want to look at one of the more colorful individuals in all of the word of God. He was a king in Judah. His name was Manasseh. And his life reminds us again, Failure doesn't have to be terminal. In fact, God wants to use failure in our life to teach us some valuable lessons. 
You have an outline in your bulletin. Let's talk about Manasseh's great beginning. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18, and we'd like to look at verses 1 to 7. Manasseh's great beginning. And to talk about that, I want to read a little bit about his dad. Manasseh had a father by the name of Hezekiah. <coughs> and these verses talk about Hezekiah, Manasseh's great beginning. 2 Kings 18 and verse 1. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Verse 3, he did right in the sight of the Lord. Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke down, he, excuse me, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the son of Israel burned incense to us. It was called the Neshishtan. Verse 5, he, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him, for he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went, he prospered. So what do we know about Manasseh's dear old dad, King Hezekiah? Well, for one thing, his dad, which we didn't read about in this passage, was a guy by the name of Ahaz, who was one of the more wicked kings in Judah. This is not Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel of the northern kingdom of Israel. This is King Ahaz. And so when Hezekiah became king, he removed the high places. He was responsible for one of the most incredible spiritual revivals that totally rejuvenated the southern kingdom of Judah. He delivered the people from apostasy, and if you read about his life, he was encouraged with prophets like Micah and Isaiah. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And when he'd been king about seven years, he had a bouncing baby boy by the name of Manasseh, which in Hebrew means to forget. Why would you name your son to forget? When Manasseh himself was 12 years old, he ascended the throne and he reigned with dear old dad for about 10 years until Hezekiah died. Altogether, Manasseh reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. Think about that. From 697 to 642 B.C., the longest that any king reigned, the longest that any king reigned in either Judah or Israel. So Manasseh had a great beginning. He had a lot of potential. What did he have going for him? Neat dad, godly dad. He witnessed an unprecedented time of spiritual revival. He was mentored by people like Micah and Isaiah. Last week, we talked about how the Assyrians surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem and that Hezekiah laid it all out before the Lord. We need your help. And God said, I will deliver you. And we read about how God destroyed the Assyrian army. Manasseh would have been an eyewitness of the hand of God doing things like that. He had incredible potential, and yet Manasseh did not walk in the footsteps of his dad. Well, we saw his great beginning. He had a lot of potential. Let's talk about his godless reign. Turn a couple pages over to chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21, 
And we'll pick it up with verse 1, 2 Kings 21, 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hepzibah. You know, if I would have had a daughter, that was a great name, isn't it? Hepzibah. Had four boys, what can I say? When he was 12 years old, he became king, reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hespa. Verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Okay, what did he do? What were the sins that he committed? Well, verses 3 through 9 lists them out one by one. Verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah's father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made the Asherah as... Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. What were the high places? What is that talking about? That's the groves on the top of hills where they worshipped the Baals and the Asherah. Uh, Manasseh's grandfather was an adamant proponent of that. Hezekiah removed all the high places and Manasseh brought it all back and so much more. Verse 3 talks about worshipping the hosts of heaven, the moon and the stars and the planets. Verse 4, what else did Manasseh do? He built altars. Oh, that's good, right? Altars. In the house of the Lord. That's talking about the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. God's temple in Jerusalem built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars, to whom? For all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He also practiced infant sacrifice. Verse 6, he made his son pass through the fire. Practiced witchcraft, used divination, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, making your son pass through the fire, they pass through the fire all right, but they don't live to talk about it. This is infant sacrifice to pagan gods. It also chronicles the fact that he consulted with mediums and spiritists and practiced witchcraft. If that wasn't bad enough, he took the carved Asherah pole and put it in the temple. Look at verse 7. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, if only... They will observe to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Now keep in mind what the Asherah is. Asherah is the fertility goddess. Manasseh took a pornographic pole and put it in the temple of God in Jerusalem. Everything that's ugly and obscene. And you say to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why didn't somebody stop him? Wasn't there a revival under his dad? Why didn't somebody shake Manasseh and say, you can't do that? Well, look at verse 9. That answers that question. But they would not listen to what? Well, we just read about it in the verse private previously. If only they will observe according to all that I've commanded them, according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they didn't listen to that. And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Understand what's being said here. Manasseh alone is responsible for bringing the total decline 
to pagan apostasy. That isn't all. There's another comment that we're going to get to in verse 16. In fact, let's just read verse 16. Drop down there for a moment. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides the sin which he had made Judah to sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, he silenced his opposition with a reign of terror. The Jewish historian Josephus looks back on these years, and this is what he says. Manasseh slaughtered all the righteous men that were among the Hebrews. He slaughtered all the righteous men that were among the Hebrews, and he didn't spare even the prophets. Every day he killed them until Jerusalem was overflowing with blood. Nice guy. What did he do with his old mentor, Isaiah? Jewish Talmud, I can't prove to you if this is true or not, but according to the Jewish Talmud, that's not scripture. But the Jewish Talmud said that he tied up his old mentor, Isaiah, in a log and cut it in half. And I firmly believe that is exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 11.37, that some of God's heroes were sawn in two. Nice guy. Whatever happened to Manasseh? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 10, 2 Kings 21, verse 10. Now, the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who were before him, and also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, verse 12, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem a line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Verse 14, I will abandon, my, abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they will become as plunder and spoil to their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. Verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides the sin which he made Judah to sin, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, and the sin that which he committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, became king in his place. God said, you know what? Because of the sins of Manasseh and the people, I'm going to level Jerusalem. I'm going to wipe it clean like you would wipe a dish. The destruction is going to be so bad that when people hear about the destruction of Jerusalem, it'll make both of their ears tingle. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not want to be in Manasseh's shoes. We've looked at his great beginning, so much potential. We've talked about his godless reign. Can I do a Paul Harvey today? Anybody know Paul Harvey? Okay, I'm old, I know. He did the rest of the story, and there is a rest of the story in the biography of King Manasseh. And that rest of the story is chronicled for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, if you would like to turn there. Now, I want to say, by way of clarification, that First and Second Kings have a purpose. The purpose of 1 and 2 Kings is to trace the decline and fall of the northern kingdom of Israel into Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah into Babylon to give the reason. This is why God led them into captivity. And because that's their purpose, sometimes the stories given there are a little bit abbreviated. 
they're a little bit abridged. And as we read in 2 Chronicles, that is true with the story of Manasseh, the rest of the story. As you read uh, 2 Chronicles 33, verses 1 to 10, excuse me, verses 1 to 9, they basically give us the same story as we already read about in 2 Kings. But in verses 10 to 20, a new story begins to emerge. Let's read verses 1 to 9, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations that the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Verse 3, he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he practiced witchcraft and divination and practiced sorcery and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Verse 7. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land that I have appointed to your fathers, if only they will observe all that I have commanded them according to the law and the statutes and the ordinances given through Moses. Verse 9, Thus Manasseh misled Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations that the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. So you read those verses, there's really nothing new here. It's just kind of a recap. But there is more to the story. Failure does not have to be terminal in your life, or in mine, or in the life of Manasseh. Let's continue to look at the rest of the story. Verses 10 and 11 talk about Manasseh's reproof. Did God do anything about this? Yes, he did. He chastened King Manasseh. Look at verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and the people, but they paid no attention. Verse 11. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them and captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. Is God in the affairs of men? Is he involved in your life and mine? Yeah, he is. Does he care? Yeah, he does. What's happening in this chapter? God spoke to Manasseh and the people, but they weren't listening, so God spoke another way. He brought the king of Assyria and captured Manasseh and took him with bronze chains and hooks to Babylon. Now, wait a minute. We, we understand what the bronze chain, what are the hooks? Can I tell you that the Assyrians were just brutal, barbaric? In 2 Kings 19.28, it gives us a clue that those hooks evidently were hooks through the nose to lead people along. You think that would get your attention? Yes. And they carted him off to a dungeon where he languished for 12 long years. Talk about horror. Talk about hopelessness. Talk about total humiliation. That's what I call hitting bottom. You ever hit bottom? God dealing in his life, using adversity 
to shake him up and bring him back into a right relationship with the living God. I'm going to suggest to you, before we get too high and mighty and look down our noses at, Mo at Manasseh, it's always good to look in the mirror. God uses hard times and our failure, even our sinful failure, to do some very powerful things and to teach us some lessons. What possible lessons does God want us to, to learn from our failure, even sinful failure? Well, here's one of them, that we all need God's forgiveness. The truth is that every one of us have sinned against a holy God. Romans 6, Romans 3, 23, we've all sinned. There's none righteous, not even one. And before you look at me with that more holy thing, then let me just ask you, have you ever lied to someone? You ever taken what belonged to somebody else? Those are two of the Ten Commandments right there. I could go on. In Romans 6, 23, the wages of our sin is death, that we deserve God's judgment. But God in his love did something about that. 1 Peter 3, 18, when Christ died for our sins, that he might bring us to God. Jesus Christ went to the cross, shed his blood on the cross as a payment for your sin and for mine. God so loved the world, so loved you, so loved me, that he gave his only begotten son, who died on the cross, took your place, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. A decision, believe on him. You know, as an 18-year-old kid, who knelt beside my bed at 1244 1st Street, Lapeer, Michigan, told the Lord, I know I've sinned against you, and I deserve punishment. I deserve hell. But God, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And I'm asking you now to forgive me and to give me that gift of eternal life. Did I deserve it? Absolutely not. But based on the promises of God's word, I believe that he did that. He forgave me and gave me that gift of eternal life. And you know what, this morning, you have an opportunity. If you have never made that decision, you have an opportunity to make that decision this morning, to ask the Lord to forgive you and to give you that gift of eternal life. But you know, even as believers, James tells us we all sin in many ways. James 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I'm sorry. We haven't arrived yet. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What possible lessons can we learn from failure, even sinful failure? One of them is we all need God's forgiveness. And you know what? You can have that this morning to walk out of this auditorium forgiven. Well, what other lessons? One of them is, well, maybe I need a little help to live the Christian life. Maybe I need to take up God's resources. Maybe I need to get into the Word of God every day and claim His promises. Maybe I, I need to start believing the truth of the Word of God instead of the lies of Satan that we are being bombarded with every day. Maybe, just maybe, I need to take up God's resources and spend time with the Lord in prayer and develop that prayer life. Maybe I need to take up God's resources and find a couple of godly friends who can uh, help me and encourage me and hold me accountable. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Maybe I need to take up God's resources that when I put my feet on the floor after I get out of bed, I say to the living God, you know what? I can't do this. I want your will to be done in my life today because it's when we walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16, that's when we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. What does God want me to learn from my failure? 
I need a little help. I need to grow up and mature spiritually. Well, what else does God want to teach me? That failure doesn't have to be terminal. He wants to remind me of his unconditional love for me. I don't have to perform. I'm his child. Psalm 103, 14, he knows my frame. I'm but dust, just as a father has compassion on his children. So has compassion on us. He removes my sin from the east to the west. Failure doesn't have to be terminal. In fact, when we finally get to the place where we recognize that God uses broken and scarred people for his honor and glory, if you look at Scripture, look at the biography of person after person after person after person. Not too many of those people have arrived. They are, many of them were broken and scarred. And when we finally get to the place where we recognize how dependent we are on God, that's when we're in a position where he can finally use us. So whatever happened to Manasseh? He's languishing in prison. Oh, I'm sorry, you've got to come back next week. Just kidding, I'm not going to be here next week. Lord willing. Whatever happened to Manasseh, there he is languishing in prison. Let's look at verse 12 that talks about his repentance. When he, Manasseh, was in distress. Oh, you think? When he was in distress, what did he do about that? He entreated the Lord his God. He entreated the Lord. He prayed. He pleaded. He entreated the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. What did he do? He took responsibility for his sin. He said, yes, I'm guilty. I did this. He isn't pointing fingers at other people. That's what we do. That's not repentance. That's rationalization. He took responsibility for his sin. I did that. How did God respond to his repentance? Look at verse 13. Manasseh's return. When he, Manasseh, prayed to him, God, he, God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication, brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. Verse 14, now after that, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. He encircled Ophiel with it and made it very high, put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. Verse 15, he also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and threw them outside the city. Verse 16, he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings on it and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. So God forgave Manasseh and brought him back to, as king in Jerusalem. What did he do when he got there? He took the altars of the temple and he threw that garbage out of the city gate. He took the Asherah pole and destroyed it. He built an altar to the Lord and he began to sacrifice to God on that. And he thanked God for his mercy and his grace. He used everything in his power to bring the nation back to the Lord. God gave Manasseh 20 more years to rule. Gave him a second chance. Clean slate, fresh start. And he made the most of it. Can I just say to you that there's still consequences to the sin? And there always are. Those sons that passed through the fire, they weren't coming back. Isaiah's not coming back. 
there are consequences to our sin, and I don't minimize that, but there's also consequences to obedience. It is incredible that Manasseh became one of the greatest kings you'd ever had, a glorious example of God's mercy and grace of taking a heart of stone, making it into a heart of flesh. Manasseh's name means to forget. That's what God did with his previous years. God knows our frame that we're but dust. Here is our sins in the depths of the sea. You know what? You have an opportunity here this morning for a clean slate. If you come to him in repentance, I don't care what your past is, he will forgive it. He will bury it in the depths of the sea, and guess what? He ain't bringing it up anymore. Whatever happened to Manasseh, verses 18 to 20 talk about his rest, how he ended well. Slept with his fathers. Verse 18, the rest of the acts of Manasseh even his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, are they in the records of the kings of Israel? His prayer and how God was entreated by him, all of his sin, his unfaithfulness and the sites in which he built high places and erected the ashram and the carved images. Before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the records of Jose. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house, and Ammon his son became king in his place. Picture this, halftime, Rose Bowl, 1929, halftime. The coach of the University of California at Berkeley, his name is Nibs Price, he walks into the locker room, and there's his team. Over in the corner is Roy Ragels. He's got a towel over his head. Nobody's talking to him. And Nibs Price doesn't say anything for the longest time. But then finally, a couple minutes before halftime's over, he quietly says, the team that started the first half will start the second there's Roy Regals over in the corner, towel over his head. He pulls the towel off his head. He throws it on the floor, and he says, I can't do that, coach. I can't go back in. I've humiliated the team. I've humiliated the school. I've humiliated myself. I can't go back in. And Coach Price looked him in the eye, and he said, get back in the game, Regals. It's only half over. There are some in this auditorium this morning who need to get back in the game. It's only half over. If God can forgive Manasseh, then God can forgive you. Just as a father has compassion. I think, personally, that God wants to use failure in our lives to teach us some incredibly important lessons. What lessons? First of all, about God's forgiveness. Listen, none of us have arrived. We've all got skeletons. You are not unique here. I don't care what it is in your past. But God promises in 1 John 1, 9 that when we confess our sins, when we turn from that, he will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have an opportunity here this morning to walk through those doors with a clean slate. Yes, there's consequences to sin. I'm not minimizing that, but God's forgiveness. Secondly, God wants to use that sinful failure in your life to teach you that, you know what, duh, maybe I need a little help here. I need to take up God's resources. I can't do this on my own. This Christian life, I need help here. I need to get into the Word of God every day so that I understand what truth is. Instead of believing the lies of the enemy that we're being bombarded every day with. I need to learn how to pray effectively. 
I need other people in my life to encourage me spiritually. I need to be filled with the Spirit of the living God. Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. By the way, that's a command. That is what the average Christian is supposed to do. That's not just for your pastor or the board. That is for every believer we are commanded to be filled. To, to, to step out of that bed and to say to the living God, I'm not living for me today. I'm living for you, I, and I'm asking you to forgive me and to fill me with your Spirit. God wants to use failure in your life to teach you some lessons. We need God's forgiveness. We need to take up his resources. And finally, that failure, uh, even sinful failure, reminds us of his unconditional love. That God will take that sin, buried in the depths of the sea. I'm his child. He cares. Failure doesn't have to be terminal. God is in the business of using broken and scarred people for his honor and glory. Just ask David and Bathsheba. Ask the Apostle Paul, the foremost of sinners. You look at Scripture. Who wasn't broken as God? There are a few. But God is in the business of using people like you and me for his honor and glory. And when we learn how dependent we are on him, we finally get to the place where he can use us. Time to get back in the game. Failure does not have to be terminal. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our examples in Scripture that just remind us of the reality of life. Who has arrived? I have not, certainly. But I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you understand that we are but dust. And even despite our failure and our sin, you were the one who sought us out and sent your Son to die on a cross that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. You know my heart this morning that if there's someone here that has never made that decision, to trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that today would be that day, that they would know that they are, have eternal life. And for that believer who's struggling, Satan loves to throw failure up in our face, that, Father, help us to understand that when we confess that and turn from that sin and repent, that you will forgive us. And that sin that you've forgiven, you're not going to bring that up again. We stand forgiven. Father, help us to realize how desperately that we need your help to be in the Word every day, to learn how to pray effectively, to find godly Christian friends. Heavenly Father, to walk by your Spirit. We need your help, Father. Help us to realize that. Thank you for your goodness, and we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.